Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today we are going over the Torah reading called uh, Shemot. Shemot covers basically the first five chapters and dabbles into, in our English Bibles, into chapter six, but basically it's the first five chapters of Exodus, and Shemot means names. We are actually going to be spending most of our time in the book of Isaiah, but where we are going to be here in Shemot is in chapter 3. One of the, the key parts that uh, we've talked in times past about the name of the Lord that you see mentioned here in chapter 3 of Exodus and the import of that. And we are going to be taking a look at another key name of the Lord that you'll see show up in a very specific prophecy. But first off, one of the key things that we see here is that the Lord uh, certainly will, the Lord certainly will um, remember. Uh, he says, I will certainly be with you. It said this there in Exodus 3, verse 12. And that he has remembered the suffering. Now, this is one of the key things that you see throughout, throughout the word is the remembering. That's the Lord remembered Noah and his family in the ark. Did the Lord forget? Or was this a specific kind of remembrance? And it's very interesting that we have the, the term that we have in here, uh, zikaron, and zikaron is the Hebrew term for a memorial or a remembrance, but they're kind of packaged together. A, this is a remembrance that has significance, and significance that goes long beyond the situation that you're currently in. So, thus, we should expect to see that when there is a memorial made, a memorial name, a memorial that comes to a situation like Pesach or Passover, that this will be in not only the time that it is there, but also for the future, that future generations will take this. Because this is put, putting up a, you know, for example, when you put up a statue, when you put up a memorial or some sort of pillar or obelisk or something or other, that is to commemorate something that has happened in a given point in time. But it is also there, since you're putting up something of significance that's going to, you hope, perhaps last, that it will be remembered for time going forward. So what then is this remembrance that you're seeing here? And you see it mentioned at the beginning part of this chapter. This remembrance is that I have remembered you, Israel. 
And that remembrance is, is I know what you have been through and what you are suffering. And you'll see that a number of people over the years have riffed on what you see in the next chapter, chapter 4, with these three signs that Moshe is told to give. The three signs being, do you have the staff that goes to a snake and goes back to a staff when he grabs the tail of it? Then you see the hand, where his hand is fine, and he's told to stick it into his cloak and then pull it back out again, and then it's leprous. And you see later on in the Torah, when it talks a lot about that condition of leprosy, it's more than just a, a physical condition. It is also a spiritual condition, but it is also like you are considered to be like the walking dead or as it's considered talked about in the case of Miriam, that you are stillborn, like a stillborn baby, meaning you died before you were born. But then you see, so the hand of Moshe, fine, put in to his cloak, taken out, stillborn, walking dead, put back in, pull back out, fine. And then you have the other sign The sign of you take water, and then you pour it out on the ground, and then what? It turns to blood. So, thus you have three signs, and each of those, you might say, could be pictures of that the Lord remembered what Israel has gone through. Because remember that you have the the word for staff, is also the same as for tribe. So if you think about it, as a picture of staff tribe thrown down to the ground becomes a snake and then grabbed by the tail and made into a staff again. Well, it's in a sense what you might see is a picture of the whole sojourn in Egypt and coming back out. It was a staff. It was the leadership there, the leadership of this nation thrown down to the ground, becomes a snake, and then picked back up again out the other side, out with the exodus, the departure from Mitzrayim, and became the nation again. Then you see there with the pouring out of the water onto the ground, where do you see water taken from the Nile, Nile water turning to blood? Do you see that with what? The first the first uh, of the plagues that we'll be reading about in the uh, upcoming Torah sections. So with that, you also see the suffering. And we read about that in the other portions of this particular section today with the suffering of the newborn children. Because what was it say at the beginning? That they were multiplying so much that they were just like vermin scattered uh, on the ground, slithering on the ground, and multiplying like cockroaches. And so what? They tried the two avenues. First to get the midwives to take out the kids, and the midwives did not want to do it. And so then the people of Egypt were commissioned to then do it themselves. If you see, see the kids, throw them into the Nile. 
So with all this, you know, the Lord is telling Moshe, hey, I have seen what you've been going through. I haven't just abandoned you here. And remember, overarching off for all of this was the promise that was given to Avraham that on, after four centuries, there would be a return, that they would be brought back out and brought back into the land. So with all of this, you see that over this, this whole ordeal that Israel was going through in Egypt, that the Lord did indeed see what was going on. And that phrase that we see in Exodus 3.12, there, certainly I will be with you. That is a very important phrase that we see showing up throughout the rest of the Exodus experience. And we encounter it, again, very intently in Exodus uh, 33, where this is a case of after the golden calf. So this is after the Exodus. And you've, they've come to the mountain. They've gone to the place. Because one of the, the, the signs that was given to Moshe is, this is a sign that I will be with you when I bring you back to this mountain. And that, so they make it to the mountain. So the Lord is with them. But then you have the golden calf. And then you had this division, uh, the falling away of a huge part of, you know, significant part of Israel fell away. And then you had the reinstitution of the covenant with going back for the, the second tablets. The second tablets. Second tablets of the testimony. But one of the things that you see is that the Lord is saying, I'm with you. But Moshe is like, Show me your glory. I want to see your glory. So thus you see in chapter 33, where he makes his glory appear before, before Moshe. But a part of his glory is also a part of the name, you know, that he is faithful, enduring, loving kindness, loyal. Yes. So I don't know about the rest of you, but my personal life. <laughs> um, it's an interesting process that uh, you may receive a blessing from God. Or, okay, God answered this prayer, whatever the case may be. And then, you know, a week goes by or a month goes by, and you've forgotten that one, and you move on to the next problem. I, I, maybe everybody else has a problem, but I have that problem. It's a short-term memory issue. <laughs> it's like, and I had to, to stop and pause. As you're pointing out the memorial thing or, or, or combination of, of remembering, the idea of remembering, it, it's, it's not so much as like, oh, I closed because I forgot, as you pointed out. It's not that really I forgot. It's more of the, the time has come to now I will address it. Much like how we're supposed to you know, go through every year of our life, all the holidays, go back and think about, okay, what, what, is this, what, what, what has happened to me this past year, good or bad, and how did God walk me through each, each of the holiday sequences? And if we fail to do that, it falls in the trap that I fall into regularly of, God, are you even, do you even hear the words I'm saying? Do you even yes. hear my prayers I'm putting up to you? Oh, obviously, you're not answering them, or the answer is always no, regardless of how I rearrange, how to do tweak it, nothing ever seems to work out. It's that constant 
of my short-term memory is so short <laughs> that I have no persistence in retaining what I went through as far as how I got here. All those, 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 I quickly, in one ear, out the other kind of thing. You answer that prayer and I move, I move on to the next one as opposed to saying, stop, wait a minute. That prayer was answered and always continues to focus upon that. It's hard to, uh, to, to, to do that in my own personal life. It's just, I don't know what anybody else is, but it is for me. And that's why, as we've uh, talked about in times past, that the name of the Lord, as he expresses it, you know, yeah, yeah, I share it, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, is translated various ways as I will be who I will be, I am who I am. And then you see the contraction of it that we have it as Yahweh is a contraction of the various type, the various verb forms of to be in uh, one thought, which is really the the encapsulation of this passage that we're taking a look at here in Exodus chapter 3. I will be with you. You The one who was, the one who was with you, the one who is, the one who is with you, and the one who is to come, or the one who will be with you. So that is an important name, or you could say memorial, or reputation of the Lord, is the was with you in the past, was with your ancestors in the past, was with the people of God in the past, is with the people of God now, will be with the people of God in the future. So thus we come down to uh, some other encouragements. You can see in uh, Genesis 31, you see a very similar thing said to uh, the father of Yosef, Yaakov. And he was needing encouragement after the whole <laughs> Levon experience. Of He was blessed with children, he was blessed with the flocks, but he needed the encouragement that, yes, the Lord is still with him, even though he was on the run from his brother. Yes. It's funny because the same train of thought is that, okay, if God answers a particular prayer, imagine one. Prayer X, he, did, he answered that question for me like maybe last week or two months ago, whatever case it was. I continue on my own path. And you always have to, at least I have to think about, okay, you need the re-encouragement. To know, hey, did I, have I deviated from my path since the last time some major thing, good thing, or, or even hard thing that you walked me through has occurred? Because I don't know, most people will, oh, great, that's good, and, and you head strong forward. I have a headstrong mentality in most things. I'll go forward and think, oh, I'm doing the right thing, and, and then I start stumbling. What happened? Why is this not working? God, what happened? not realizing that I've deviated over time, or maybe I've not deviated, but the point is it's always have that continuous, yes, this is the right path, yes, you're still doing okay. Yes. Um, I don't know how to describe it, how to compare it to, other than you know, a child learning something new. Okay, I, I did this, go so far, okay, check your parents or your instructor. Oh, ha- have I done the right thing? Now, the next step is this. Is that right? Yeah, okay, then keep going. You always have a chance to touch base with, touch base with your instructor or your guide, along to their task or difficulty to verify you haven't deviated so far that 
you went the wrong path and now you're in, you know, never, never land, <laughs> come back kind of thing. Let's reguide it. It's a, it's a necessity that people need, at least that I've noticed people need that continuous, you know, touch basis. Am I still good? And thus you get Paul's point when he says that the Torah is a tutor. Now, that's often interpreted as, okay, well, that's elementary stuff. You leave it behind, and then you move on into the future. You've grown past it. You've outgrown the Torah and moved on. But like he's illustrating in life, life is not like that at all. Because we can see what's happened in education when you, quote, outgrow the essentials. And you realize, ah, you know, the multiplication tables, that's just passe. And you don't get down the fundamentals. I mean, one of the things I encountered the problems with in calculus, and it drove my professor insane, was that I would be able to get all of the you know, integrations and all that stuff, all those mechanics right, and then screw up the adding and subtracting in the problem. Because I really hadn't gotten down the fundamentals. Even though I was able to sort of grasp the advanced concepts, I screwed up the basics because I wasn't paying attention to it. And that is indeed what the testimonies of the Lord are, and why it is that we go through these on a regular cycle, that we go through and we get the refresher. And part of what the cycle of all the appointed times are, are they are memorials in time for certain things that God has done, is doing, and will do again. So these are all things that we touch base with and say, okay, well, where, we, where were we with this last time or in the past? Have we grown in the process? Or are we still stumbling over, tripping, falling over the same things again and again and again? And then the question comes up, why are we stumbling, tripping, falling over the same things again and again and again? Because, yeah, we, we may encounter problems with the same things over and over again, but a part of that maturity is to realize why we come across these things. So, just like the Apostle Yaakov gets at in the first chapter of his letter, James chapter 1, you know, we aren't tossed back and forth like a ship on the ocean. We ask for wisdom. Why? Why are these trials happening? What is it that we, per, why are we persevering through these things? Because as the apostle says, you know, from perseverance through this, we get to maturity so that we are complete and lacking nothing anymore. That process is a lifetime. Yes, Alex. Um, yeah, and it kind of factors in with that strange relationship with Egypt. It happens over and over. Uh, even Yeshua spent, what, his first 10 years in Egypt? Yes. And why Egypt shows up again in prophecy, especially like when you see it in Zechariah, and there seems to be a strange kind of, f- of fondness for Egypt in prophecy when you'd think that they would be on par with Babylon, because Babylon certainly that experience is that, okay, you leave that and you leave that behind and there is nothing good that is going to come from that whatsoever. But one of the things that we see just at the beginning part of the Torah reading of Shemot 
is that there were pharaohs that knew Yosef and through Yosef knew the Lord and trusted the Lord enough to turn over the entire country's administration to one who was led by the Lord. But then there was the pharaohs that did not know Yosef in the process. So that's one of the things that is a bit of a difference. Yes. Same principle applies when you have people who live, for example, just use this example, not not picking on any any particular person or country, but in in your nation, whatever nation you live in, you've lived there for however many years or even generations, and you still have a hope that, okay, my nation will get better or my government will do the right thing. Or you always have that continuous hope as opposed to saying, ah, forget you all and go to hell, move on. Um, we always have that, that attachment, much like with Egypt. Well, there were, as you point out, there were those who did right and there were those who did wrong. Our nation has leaders to do right and leaders to do wrong. And we always have this constant hope, the hope is the eternal thing. That, that, that the next one will do better or they will improve or they'll make the right decision or they'll, they'll, they'll make the right sequence of events to occur. That, that hope is always there. Same principle that Egypt, the hope was always Egypt. Well, the, but the next one will get better. The, the next pharaoh will do, will, will do, will get rid of these difficulties. They'll, they'll improve. They'll, 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 go, they'll grow past this, this, this struggle. That hope that's always there, much like it's in our own country, it's in our own family and friends and loved ones who have no use for God at all in their lives. The hope that, well, God will somehow arrange this. He'll, 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 he'll call that person back. Or what are the cases it be? That, that hope that never gives up. It's still there. And one of the other key passages where you see that there was a key leader of Israel who needed encouragement, uh, that the Lord was going to be with them <laughs> quite a few times, is uh, Yehoshua, otherwise known as Joshua. And when you had the handoff from Moshe to Joshua, that encouragement was needed. We see it recorded in Deuteronomy 31, 23, and also in the book of Joshua 1, verse 5, that this important, important part needs to be emphasized with the new leader. Yehoshua had to be reminded that, yes, God was with Moshe, and there was a very special relationship, you know, because it's described that, uh, that Moshe had a relationship with the Lord that was quite similar to Avraham's, where it was like they would meet face-to-face like one was talking with a friend. They had that kind of relationship between heaven and earth. Now, Yehoshua, imagine trying to fill those shoes, moving on forward. You know, Yehoshua is a great general there. You see him at work at the battle with Amalek there the first time. But, and now he's going to be in charge of going up against these big tall walls and the big people, the fortified cities, but needed the encouragement that yes, that trust that he had in the Lord earlier when he and um, his compatriot went into the land and said, yes, the Lord is with us. These people are big. The walls are big, tall, and thick. But if the Lord says, we can take this and he's going to be with us, that he will be with us. But he also needed that encouragement, that encouragement with that handoff, that the Lord was actually going to be with them. So now it brings us to, you might say, is the um, 
secondary Haftarah or parallel reading that we're going to be focusing on mostly today. And that is over in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to be dipping into parts of this uh, from Isaiah chapter 7 through uh, chapter 12, the beginning part of this. One of the key aspects of this passage, uh, some scholars end up calling this the, the book of Emmanuel, because uh, Emmanuel is mentioned uh, explicitly twice, and you could say in passing uh, in so many words three times in this particular passage. And it is a key aspect to this, because just like we had, we had mentioned earlier, where there are good leaders, there are bad leaders. <laughs> and what we're seeing here, we're being dropped historically in the midst of a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel in Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Yehuda or Judah. And those two nations divided. And in the northern kingdoms, they had mostly bad and a few good kings that came in the process. And Yehuda also had a lot of bad kings. So it seems when you read through Chronicles and Kings, it's like it's like a it's like a spiritual roller coaster with their you know uh, towards God, away from God, towards God, away from God, and that. Now think about the what that does in the midst of a people. You know we. In our country, can see what happens when leadership goes back and forth, and uh, you have strong leadership, weak leadership, etc., etc., etc. And what then happens with the people if those things at the top then start filtering down to the bottom, and you end up with chaos? Now, one of the things that <laughs> that uh, imagine this also amplified further, where the kings, the leaders of the nation, are also involved with influencing what happens with your uh, religious leadership, your connection to God. And we'll be seeing a bit of that as we go through in this particular passage that we're looking at here today. But that is a bit of the backdrop. And uh, there's also a contention between North and South. We Saw that in our own country with the Civil War contention between North and South. Brothers to the North, brothers to the South, fighting each other and creating a mess of things. So that is also what we see as a backdrop to this particular passage. So we'll go through here, chapter 7, and then um, step back and take a look at the context of this. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Yotam, son of Uzziah, the king of Yehuda, that Razin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it is reported at the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. When then, then the Lord said to Isaiah, now go out to meet Ahaz and your son, She'er Yahashbub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool 
on the highway to the fuller's field and say to them, take care and be calm, have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Razin and Aram and the son of Romalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has planned evil against you, saying, let's go up against Yehuda and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the sons of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Well, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim would be shattered, and so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the, last, is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely will not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse good and choose uh, refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as has never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Yehuda, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Mitzrayim and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges and cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair and the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now in that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, but because of the abundance of milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for the hills which used to cultivate by the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. Now, actually, let's uh, go on into chapter 8 because that ties into chapter 7 here as we will see here shortly. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will, make, I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Moriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Yeberechiah. 
So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as the people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah, and rejoice in Razin and the son of Ramalia. Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise up over the channels and go over the banks, and it will sweep on into Yehuda, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the, sp- and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places on the earth. Gird yourselves, and yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say, It is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, and to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal up the law among my students. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel and the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult to the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Okay, so now just hitting the rewind button a little bit. What we are looking at here under the hood is what is often called the, uh, the Syro-Ephraimite War, meaning that you had Syria or Aram, with this uh, capital in Damascus, modern-day Syria, and you have the kingdom of Ephraim, or the northern kingdom of Israel. They're, they have banded together. Now, bef- uh, for several kings leading up to uh, this particular king up in the north, there was a, an alliance between the kingdom of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and Assyria. But, and you had um, Aram and Ephraim 
battling each other. And they had battled each other in times past. But in this case, they had uh, formed an alliance, an alliance together. And you can read about this in particular in 2 Kings chapter 15, 16, and also in 2 Chronicles 28. It's really kind of interesting to see the different aspects of those two particular passages of what was happening as the backdrop to this. But one of the key things that you saw in there was that Aram and Ephraim had banded together to what? To throw off, to rebel against the empire of Assyria, which was growing at that particular point. It was growing to the west and growing to the south and growing to the east. And it was going to get much, much bigger over time. But in this particular point, it was growing. Now to see that Ephraim and Aram were going to do something against it, was quite amazing. But you had King Ahaz, who was on the throne in Yehuda in the south, and he decided not to go along with this alliance that was going on between Aram and Ephraim. He decided to go against them. And you see then, you have in the various accounts that there was then the invasion of the two Aram and Ephraim came down and invaded uh, through Yehuda and kind of did a, you could say, a pincer move where you had part of them came down from, uh, from, uh, from Samaria, which was the capital, and came down to the south and kind of swung down around the what is the western shores of the of the uh, Sea of Galilee, and then you also had Aram came down from the east on the east side of Galilee, and down went down through. Well, those were the nations of Moab and Edom, were on the east side of the Jordan River, and at the same time, well, if that wasn't enough, that Ahaz was facing this move from the north. You also had Philistia, which was on the Mediterranean Sea, was pushing east toward Yerushalayim. And then you also had the Edomites were also pushing west into Negev, the, the, the southern end of uh, modern-day Israel. And they also were pushing north. So you had this kind of a box situation of these nations coming in from the north, from the from the west, from the east, together. And in the midst of this, you see the message that Yeshiahu the prophet is giving to Ahaz. Okay, these forces are coming against you. But what is the outcome going to be from this attack? The attack is not going to be successful. Based on Isaiah's comments here, uh, it looks like attack within roughly two years, two and a half years, three years, it would be completely dead. Or the attack would end, it would fail. Yes. So that's yeah. the whole child-born thing, because it's pregnancy, give birth, roughly a year or so later, the child learns, you know, don't touch that, it hurts. <laughs> they learn what's right or wrong then. So about within two years, maybe three, it would be all vanished. Yeah, there's uh, where where you see a, a couple of ideas on what that time frame is. Is that um, that it could possibly be up to 
10, 12 years with one, depending on how you take that, not knowing good from bad, whether that's the age of accountability, which would be 12, 13 or so, or if it's taken to be a couple of years and what you see in the next chapter. Well, you could say in both cases, yes, because what ended up happening was that war only lasted about two years because what happened was, yes, the King Ahaz did call in his backup from his uh, superior. He was a vassal, a vassal king to Assyrian Empire. So he called in the Assyrian Empire. And they did came in, did, they did come in, and first they took out Damascus. They took out Damascus. So Aram just ceased to be a separate country at that point in time. And then there ended up being the king that we see there, uh, the Pekah. He ended up, was assassinated right when that happened, right when Assyria came in, wiped out Aram. So he was assassinated. There was somebody who came up behind him, Hosea, a different kind of Hosea, (laughs) the prophet. But he came in and um, ended up trying to pull the same stunt again about a decade later. And that's when Assyria finally just came in under a different emperor and just took him out. So that's when you have that great, what we call the northern king's exile, the northern kingdom's exile. That is what really precipitated it. The first round was a devastation. The second round came in. But the problem was is, and what you see here that's expressed in Isaiah's, here what we've seen so far, 7 and 8, is that your trust was in Assyria. But not only did they take out your problem, your immediate problem of the invasions from the north, they also went farther. And you see with the, the second, when they went in and they finally destroyed Samaria, they didn't stop in Samaria. They turned south and went down and devastated the northern areas of Yehuda. And we, we, we call that kind of, you could say like maybe the, the, the west shores and the east shore areas, regions of the Galilee area, just destroyed those particular areas. So we, we think of, oh, you know, they were eating curds and honey. Well, uh, we can think, oh, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Sounds like a, because we didn't see about the flowing with milk and honey. Well, and, and when you're in an agricultural area and you're eating curds and honey, that's a bad thing, Means you, meaning you're, you're not really getting a lot out of your dairy and your agriculture is toast and you're scrambling around for honey wherever you can find it. You know, it's not like the, the great apiaries that we have today. Uh, the apiaries of ancient times were not as well refined, so you were kind of scavenging for honey to find it. So, uh, yes, Anne, you had a comment or a question? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of confused. Oh, that, what, what are you uh, confused about? Maybe we can help you out. Yeah, um, usually um, there's a map or something. I know that is, but, but um, that's one thing. But um, I'm kind of stuck at one point, and maybe it's going to divert you. I hope it won't. Okay, so verse 14, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, isn't that messianic? 
Dine there, and butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. So um, when it comes to that timing, I, I was always of the idea, maybe it was incorrect, that Yeshua didn't sin at all, I mean, between even birth and the time that he became uh, knowing to refuse the evil and choose the good. So was I, am I mistaken? I mean, he, he was sinless as far as I understood. But um, this might be diverting your your um, attention, but um, I think a map would help me clear up a, a little bit of the other problem I have. But um, is is the idea that Yeshua could not sin? I mean, he was sinless. So how would he sin between the age of two <laughs> and fourteen, or choosing the good and evil? On your other question of the um, Messianic prophecy, what we're starting with here is the starting point for this, because with the prophecies, there's always the, what the what's come to be called the now and the not yet aspects of it, which has caused problems for commentators, Jewish and Christian, for hundreds of years, because when you see the prophecies, we'll go, you would say, well, aren't they just talking about that thing at that particular time? Or aren't they just talking about something in the future? Which is where you've then come up with the, the various approaches to the book of Revelation. You've got the preterist, you've got the premillennial, you've got the postmillennial, because you're looking at it and go, well, what time, time frame is it actually talking about? And the question is, yes. Because... Like you'll see in a lot of different uh, prophecies, there is a was, there is an is, and there is a will be. Like, for example, the abomination of desolation. When did that happen? Shiloh, first temple, second temple. So, there are a number of, well, I should say, say, Shiloh, first temple, first temple rebuilt, Second temple, so four times at least. And then you also see it talked about being again, so at least five times. So the question with the abomination of desolation is, why does it happen? And it happens for a lot of the same reason. Actually, it happens for reasons that we're talking about here today in this particular passage of 7 and 8. The abomination of desolation happens. Basically, God moves out of his house. Why? People don't want him there. The people, their hearts left him, so he leaves the building. And then you see abomination of desolation soon follows after a then destruction of the building at some point in time later. But the fall of the heart of the dwelling place of God happens before the actual place falls down. You could say it perhaps um, moral inertia, where you just have what originally was set up, but then you start losing what was actually accelerating it forward morally, but it will coast on. We see that in cultures 
where you have people that are close to God. You see it in the cultures that we're reading about here in this particular passage in Isaiah, where the people are close to God and they go away from God, but the country, the nation, continues on. It coasts on until a particular time where it runs out of gas. It runs out of the forward momentum where it was going. We see that here in the questions of modern culture here today where you have uh, people will say, well, you don't need to believe in God to be moral. I know a lot of atheist moral people, but when you stop and actually talk with them, well, where did you come up with these ideas about altruism, about the ideas of um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself ideas. When you, you talk with them, you'll start seeing that a lot of those ideas came down to them, came from a culture that believed in God. And so they themselves and the culture with them are just coasting along until finally it runs out of momentum. And with the... Yes, uh, Dan, uh, Diane, please, please go ahead. I, I'm a little confused about Jesus either was without sin or he was or was without sin. I mean, he was God made into flesh and God was with it. I, 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 forgive me for interrupting, but I really am confused because this doesn't make sense. The scripture was never meant to be, I'm not, I'm just saying, um, I don't believe the Lord ever meant for, um, for a lack of a better way of saying it, I don't think he ever meant for it to be this complicated. Well, the question is, is from, from this uh, original passage, what is the point of it? We've talked about this with the parables. Parables, people go off track on parables often because they do not look at the punchline of it. So the question is, for these particular pa- passages, what is the punchline of these prophecies? The punchline of these prophecies, and as we continue on through this uh, so-called book of Emmanuel, what uh, scholars call it, that what is the punchline? You'll see it at the beginning part of it, where we saw the slide of this King Ahaz of Yehuda. And you'll see it at the end when we get down to chapter 12 that this slide is a part of the point. The people are suffering under this slide. So the question, the same one that we saw back in Exodus chapter 3, the same one you'll see during the Exodus as we get through and go back to those chapters again, is, is God with us or not? Is God with us or not? So that what you see in Isaiah chapter 7 and in chapter 8 was brought to King Ahaz. All right, you're facing invasion. You're facing invasion from the north. Your brothers to north in Ephraim, Aram, those are two scary nations that are coming after you. You're afraid. What are you going to do? Who are you going to trust? He put his side into with, <laughs> with Assyria. And as you read those parallel passages there in uh, the Second Kings and Second Chronicles 28, 
you will see what the problem was. It wasn't just, help, I need a, I need a lifeline, and called in Assyria as backup. What ended up happening was, is Assyria came in and took out Aram. King Ahaz went up to Damascus with the emperor of Assyria. And like, wow, that is a fantastic altar they've got up there in Damascus. So what did he do? He brought up the high priest from Jerusalem to go check out this altar in Damascus. And go, wow, that thing's fantastic. So they sketched out blueprints for it and brought it back down and said, build that in Jerusalem. Then you see what happens later on is he starts <laughs> doing some, um, uh, how do you say, modifications to the furniture in the temple, and then eventually just shuts the temple doors. His son ended up having to reopen it later on. But this move by Ahaz was, well, who are you going to trust? The message that was given from Yeshua is, look, the Lord is specified that he is with you. And he is with you by also what he named the uh, sons there of, of uh, Yeshiyahu by saying about where the, yeah, there they say in chapter 8, that, uh, chapter 8, that uh, his, oh yes, Matt Swift, is the booty and speedy is the prey. Basically, that the Lord is going to come in and take them out. Take out who is against you. But Ahaz put his faith in Assyria. Instead of putting his faith in the Lord that was going to take care of these issues up there. And by putting his, his faith in to the point of, um, in a sense, destroying the temple the dwelling place of God, he was creating and carving out God from the people and destroying the temple in the process. So when you're saying, well, what is this message, God with us, to the time of the Messiah, this uh, comes in uh, much clearer. What is the punchline? is the punchline of this prophecy, every last detail in the prophecy. No. Because in the first century, uh, Samaria was destroyed. Samaria was a vassal repopulated by a couple of different empires by that point in time. Syria was a province of Rome. There was no issue with them anymore. So those details don't even apply. There was no issue with the um, the, the temple being, you know, redecorated <laughs> in the pattern of, a, uh, of the pagan temple up there in Damascus. Those details don't apply. What is the punchline? The punchline is when you are under stress, when you are under the oppression, who is going to be with you? Are you looking for Rome? Are you looking for Assyria? Are you looking for Babylon? Or are you looking to the one who lifts all those empires up and takes all those empires down? 
that you see is the punchline. As we go on, you'll see it come into uh, more detail. Let's go into chapter 9 of Isaiah. And we'll see. So we've seen this name, this Emmanuel, God with us. And a very, very interesting thing because Imanu um, is a form, uh, it just means with. And it comes from, very interestingly, uh, when you're reading through in Hebrew, uh, to figure out if it's im or am, im is with, am is people. The question is, yes. Because what is people? Who are people? An individual with an individual with an individual an individual. So thus you can say a group of individuals are with each other. And that's kind of the way that you, um, you look at Hebrew words and you start tracing their derivation. What is the message that's being communicated through this? So im, with, am, people. Individuals with each other is a people which is a lesson in and of itself. So, Am Yisrael Chai, you know, the people of Israel live. How do they live? As a bunch of free, free agents just kind of bouncing about. Maybe they interact with each other. Maybe not. They don't really care with each other. They don't even know each other. They don't know their names. Nothing. No, that's not how the people of God work. And uh, which you see that expressed in a lot of different ways. You know, we've always seen the song of Ushav Tamayim, Esason, Mimanaiha Yeshua, you draw from the waters of salvation. And then, Hinematov, how blessed and good it is when what? Brothers, people dwell together in unity. You come together, you're individuals, you will always be individuals, but as the Proverbs say in lots of different ways, two people, three people, better than just one person. They're out there trying to do everything themselves. And that is one of the key messages that you have of Immanuel, is that you, yourself, Israelites are not out there by yourself. You, Israel, are not just out there yourself amongst bouncing about among all the nations. You are with the creator of heaven and earth. And the creator of heaven and earth is with you. Because every time we go through the, the Torah passages when they talk about the tabernacle, you know... <laughs> You see that, uh, that there's only a very short period of time where the tabernacle is outside of the camp, the dwelling place of God, where God would meet with people there at Moshe's tent. But where was the tabernacle really intended to be? In the midst of the people. In the midst of the people. Which is why, you know, when you have that scene that we were looked at earlier in Exodus chapter 33, where after the golden calf, and the Lord says, well, I'll send, I'll send the Melachayad, I'll send the angel of the Lord, and the, the angel of the Lord will take you in. But Moshe was like, no, if you don't go with us, we're not going. 
So that is a, a key picture to always keep in mind. What is the punchline in all of this? So chapter 9 of Isaiah. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Arden, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they devoid the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the people will know it, that is, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Asserting in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks will be, have fallen down, and we will rebuild with smooth stones and sycamores, and have, uh, the sycamores have been cut down, and we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from Rezin and spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who guide by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity for their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel by the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is in the right hand, but still are hungry. They eat what is on the left, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Yehuda. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. So with this, we see another key messianic prophecy that is mentioned in this and one of the the key things to note um, 
is a how this is uh, especially Isaiah chapter nine verses five and six how that is rendered in the Targums and the Targums are Aramaic. Um, I can say that. <laughs> Um, devotional translations, I make it might be a way to put it because they're more than just a dynamic translation, like you see with the Septuagint. The Septuagint will will take the ideas and kind of like a new Amer- new international version style, kind of render it into what is thought to be the idea there. The Targums actually go further and actually incorporate like a sermon into the midst of how they they render things. So this is how um, Isaiah 9, 5, and 6 is in the uh, Targum Yonatan, which covers the book of Isaiah. The prophet said to the house of David that a boy has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and he has received the Torah upon himself to keep it. And his name has been called from before the one who causes wonderful counsel. God the warrior, the eternally existing one, the Mashiach, who will increase peace upon us in his days. Much is the greatness for the doers of the Torah, and there is no end to those who keep peace upon the throne of David forever. This will be done by the Memra of the Lord of hosts. And uh, Memra is an Aramaic word that has rough various different uh, translations but is often thought of being as the word of the lord in the idea of a euphemism for the presence of the lord we see it various prophets and the word of the lord came to this prophet the word of the lord came to that prophet so uh, that memory then comes down into what we see like in the book of john where it talks about the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that is why you see in the festival, the celebration of uh, tabernacles or Sukkot, that this picture of God dwelling in the midst of his people and this desire to dwell in the midst of the people, both in the time of the Torah and as we see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that this picture of the dwelling place of God being amongst the people is an intent from the very beginning. You even see it in the garden with, and it talked about the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day to be what? With. With Adam and with Chava, with Adam, with Eve, to be together with them. And this is a dream, this is a goal, this is a desire that heaven has had for the people of God to be in the midst, to be dwelling among them. And uh, this, uh, this expression in the Targums, which they have a kind of a range of dates, uh, depending on this particular one of Yonatan is either 1st century B.C. up to A.D. 300 in the expressions of the range of translations of it. But this picture is that the interpretation was that this would be an expression of where the Mashiach would be coming from. 
that the Mashiach would be coming. And Mashiach and the memory of the Lord would be a, you could say, a tag team effort. And thus we see expressed there in John chapter 1 that this efforts that the Word becoming flesh, that you have the Mashiach, the Word of God, coming and going into flesh as being an expression of what all this is about. Now, we can ask the question like we did with chapters 7 and 8. Um, the, what was happening up there in the, in the top part, uh, the, first, the first verses of chapter 9, you know, was that happening in the first century? Well, this, they're talking about the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali with contempt. Yeah, that happened under the Assyrians when they came in and leveled the northern part of Naphtali, the west shore and the east shore of Galilee. It destroyed that area of it. So in that time period, the time of when Yeshiahu was warning the king of Yehuda, hey, this is coming. This is what your decision to put your to sell your soul and the soul of the nation to Assyria. This is what's gonna it's what's gonna come to it. But then we see in the first century that where was the most receptive message? The most receptive message of the Mashiach was where? In the Galilee. In the Galilee, and even on the east shore. And by that time had become a Greek area we call like the Decapolis. It was a heavily Hellenized area. So in that area, that was also an area that was receptive to the Mashiach. So thus you see that this message was specifically for Yeshiahu's time, but also looking forward and was long understood to be looking forward and also long understood to be looking forward to the time of the Mashiach. So thus, with these Messianic prophecies, there is the now, the right then when it was specifically given and what that specifically referred to, but then the what would happen in the future. And other than some detractors, both ancient and modern, have tried to say that the that the apostles were playing fast and loose with their quotations from the Tanakh because pulling things completely out of context. What we see is that this specific context, we take this package of Isaiah 7 through 12, the book of Emmanuel, as being specifically the topic and material, the environment of where the Mashiach would come it would come into a place that would be oppressed again. Oppressed under a different empire this time would be Rome. But also, what was the leadership of Israel at the time of the first century? What were they doing? How did the Asmonians get into place? How did Herod and those folk get into place? And we just celebrate Hanukkah and all the Hasmoneans and stuff, you could say, skidded out of the, the great um, return, revival that happened during the Hanukkah period. But what happened? They coasted. After the Hanukkah period, 
they just fell into division, civil war, and eventually it wasn't Assyria that they called in, but who did they call in? Rome. They called in Rome to, to deal with their squabble, one against the other, brother fighting brother. It wasn't divided kingdom, but they were d- divided against each other in the same nation. And they called in Rome to deal with it. Well, Rome dealt with it all right. And that's when you see the picture that you see in the Gospels. That is the context of what it came in. Very almost identical to what we're reading in here in Isaiah. So thus, you can see that the now and the not yet of the Messianic prophecies are not grabbed out of context. But just like what you see in the Torah of the things that are pictured happening at that particular time, but also picturing things that will happen far off into the future, so thus you see this with the Mashiach, which would be something very special that would happen. So this is, you could say, in a sense of a, a, a call of a chomer, a very common um, rabbinical Hebraic argumentation style, which means light and heavy. So the light, and you'll see it expressed like in the, in the letter to Hebrews, Paul uses it a lot, where it's usually formulated like, you know, if da-da-da-da-da-da is true, how much more is da-da-da-da-da-da? The idea being the light side is, well, you accept it as true, this situation, which may be a common everyday life, well, then how much more is this when it's, you know, God acting in the situation to bring it to a matter of fullness? So thus you see it here in this particular situation you see in Isaiah is like, well, you see that God helped in this particular situation, that God truly was Emmanuel. That truly was his reputation in the passage we are looking at right here in the particular time period of Yehuda's history and Ephraim's history, we definitely see that instead of absentee God, he is God with us at that particular point. Well, then, how much more when the Mashiach comes, when the word of the Lord comes, how much more then is God with us? So, thus, you see that rather than playing fast and loose with Scripture, this is very common in Scripture, that this is the way that these prophecies are put out and the way the parables work, that if you have to look at what the punchline of the particular parable is, particular prophecy, otherwise you end up missing the point, like what we see here in chapter 9 of Isaiah, completely missing the point of what was being expressed to them. So to them... Thus, the Lord becomes a stumbling stone. So this expression of Emmanuel in the time of Yeshua the prophet, they stumbled over that. How much more are they going to stumble over the memory of God being among mankind? Which is why you see the Apostle Paul cite this particular passage in saying that this stumbling stone is going to be set up and people are going to stumble over it. So, and is that helping at all with you know, the question you had earlier as to this? 
is that this is specifically for this time period. But it is not just specifically for this time period of the prophet. It's about the same situation that the prophet was experiencing, but it is for a situation and setting up something that is going to be grander that will follow. Because you see, like the, the book of Yeshua was roughly divided into like three sections. You've got like the first uh, several chapters, which are an introduction. First six chapters are an introduction, setting up the problem, setting up the, the descent that both nations, north and south, have fallen down. They've, they've run out of gas and they're coasting. Well, the prophet is going to show both nations what direction they're coasting into and the fact that there is a cliff where they're coasting toward. So, with chapter 7, goes up through chapter 39, is really talking about Assyria. And thus you end with chapter 39, is talking about King Hezekiah, who is forced with also, you remember from Israel's history, the dilemma of which way you're going to go with things. But then you see, from 40 on through the end of the book, then it's, okay, you're under Babylon now, and where that is going to end up. But where does that section end up at the end of the book of Yeshiahu in chapter 66? We recite it every new moon, you know, from one new moon to another and from one Shabbat to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me. Well, that sort of happened in <laughs> the time of the Babylonian uh, return, the restoration, but it is also looking way off into the future, to the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, uh, Alex. I tried to get my, wrap my mind around how uh, Hanukkah was a little different. Uh, because it looks like there's always a prophet that said, hey, look, you, be- you guys better get this together. Um, God's coming, or he's mad. Whether it, right on down through the ages and then John the Baptist, uh, you know, with the church calendar just now. Um, but Hanukkah didn't quite come that way. That was just kind of like, uh, like a handful of people saying, look, we're not going along with this Hellenism. And it was effective, but it, it didn't, maybe it didn't have the staying power. Like you said, it just, it, it was a great thing, but it, it, uh, it was not among the major events. Uh, it just seems there was no uh, prophecy about Hanukkah. Well, one of the things uh, we uh, talked about this in uh, various times past related to Hanukkah is that... Um, the prophet Daniel actually talks a lot about the situation that leads up to Hanukkah, and specifically in the time frame of how long there would be a cessation of the daily sacrifice there in the temple is pretty much right down to the months and years of when it was out of action. And Again, it's about what was the spiritual situation of the people that happened with it. And you think, well, if the prophet Daniel, who talked about huge spans, big, incredible arcs of what God was doing, and great examples of Emmanuel, 
God with us, God working in aware of what's going on, aware of the suffering, and stepping in at certain points in time and dealing with things. That things were going to have a certain time period to run through, but then they would come to an end. So the question is, well, like like you bring up, well, what good did it do? Okay, they had a miraculous fighting off of the Seleucid army that was far bigger than they were, far better equipped, far better organized, etc. What good did that do? Because it unraveled in about, I think it was about 100 years. At about 100 years, it totally unraveled to the point where they were begging Julius Caesar to come in to deal with it. There are squabbles and petty bickering and this and that and the other. Well, what good did that all do? What came in the process was a remnant. Just like we're going to read about remnants here in this particular passage in Yeshiau is reporting. Well, there was a remnant that came out of the Maccabean era. We call them the Parashim, the separate ones, otherwise known as the Pharisees. So Pharisees, when they started, you read about their early history, they were the evangelicals of the people of God. Where did all the synagogues come from that Paul visited later on? The Pharisees established them. Earlier on, they were separate for a purpose, separate from the ways of the world for a purpose. Not that, you know, we are going to lord it over you because you're not doing it right, or we don't want to have the, you know, <laughs> expression that uh, Yeshua talked about, you know, thank, thank God that I'm not created like this guy over here, that I'm not like him. Well, that's what it descended into. Again, inertia. Where it started out, it started out a movement of things that had then its remnants of its remnants down in the time of the Gospels, where you had, where did most of the initial disciples come from and initial followers? You know, it wasn't by accident that Galilee was a particular point of where he went to. When you read about in, in Jewish literature, there was a real, um, real fervor of uh, devotion up in the Galilee area. There was a lot of really well-known and well-respected, very godly people that studied the word, were living out the two greatest commandments in their daily life, and they were known for that. So, that was the environment where the Mashiach's message really caught fire up there in the Galilee. So that was, you could say, well, what was the result of all of it? The temple was back in action. And also this remnant of a remnant of a remnant of a remnant was down there. So even though, like was prophesied later on in the book of Isaiah in 53, where he came to his own and they did not notice him, they did not receive him, yet there were some that did receive him. So that seed that was kept alive and fertilized through time. And, you know, also one of the other prophecies that does relate to um, Hanukkah is found in the little prophet book of Haggai or Haggai, uh, in, especially in chapter 2, because, you know, three times it mentions the 
you know, the time period where Hanukkah is celebrated. And that is in the context of what? Of a greater glory that was going to come to the temple. Now, the temple building itself, we read in the Gospels what that descended into, and you read in Josephus what that descended into, but there was a greater glory. The Mashiach entered into the temple. And that looking forward, just like all the prophets, like Yeshiyahu, Yemeriyahu, the others, that this place, the dwelling place of God, would be among mankind, would be built up, and it would be great. That this would be better than where it started from. And you see the, the great fire that the Mashiach brought in. You know, we'd be uh, getting to that Probably just skip to that right now. Let's go into, oh, run things out with, uh, oh, I can't skip chapter 11. Let's go to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Then, uh, actually, let's see. I got to sort of start with 33, because otherwise 11 sort of comes jarring into it. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash, and there uh, those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Okay, so that's setting up chapter 11. So they're talking about the, the, the great forests. But just like what we saw in chapter 9, they're like, hey, if... The, the great cedars were cut down. We'll, we'll make better ones. We'll just, the, the, the places are chopped down. The, the cities are knocked down. We'll build better ones. Well, yeah, build back better. Well, build back bad is what ended up happening. And yes, you had, kind of like you would say, like Herod's Temple. Herod's Temple was, you know, arguably one of the great wonders of the earth at that time period. But Ichavod, the glory had, had departed. That there was a great glory that would come into the temple, but it wasn't just because of the building. Can I remember what Yeshua was talking about with his uh, closest students? And they're marveling, walking through the temple. Wow, look at this place. Because how long Herod had spent building it? Generations he'd spent building it. But Yeshua said, eh, that's great, but it's going to all be thrown down <laughs> and destroyed. And even more particular, see, that was another now and not yet prophecy. That's, he said that not one stone would be left upon another, and three days he would rebuild it. Those both happened, but not at the same particular time periods. That 70 AD, yeah, that's well-known fact. If we go there today and see that the, the platform has been leveled, what was there before was we find remnants of it thrown over the side and, and basically into the garbage heap of the valley. Um, but what was built up was the house of the Lord, that dwelling place of God. That's what was built up, yes. Alex. Yeah, again, trying to get my mind around uh, the whole Hanukkah situation. Does it almost seem like it was the last push um, before the end of the temple and the beginning of 
uh, Messiah because uh, I heard that uh, some say that Judaism was really faltering at that point uh, with the Greek culture. So yeah, yeah. it would have been really crippled by the time Messiah came. Yeah, and you you bring up a, a very good point because that that Hellenism was just creeping into a huge degree, um, and it just always always uh, <laughs> I always I always think it's um, quite funny when you have archaeologists will talk about it because they'll they'll unearth a um, a synagogue. Uh, they're in, in the land around around that first century BC, first century AD time period, and they'll go, "Hey, look! You know, there's they've got frescoes of of creatures. Number one, of anything uh, visual, but also of like this pantheon and various things you'll see in there. Like, good grief, what happened? Well, that happened. That Hellenism, that syncretism, the taking in from the Greek culture." And bringing it in, mixing it around, reinterpreting things to um, make it work. So, one of the things that the exiles did, and also the Maccabean period did, was exiles pretty much killed off idolatry in its state of, you know, Dagon, their statues of Baal and stuff like that. That much pretty much ended that. Because when you see the people who returned, did not do any stuff like that anymore because they got at least that lesson. Then you see in the Maccabean period that uh, you see also the practice of the people then started to become snapped more into shape with a clear separation between Hellenism and devotion to the Lord because devotion to the Lord came at a huge cost. You read about it in the books of the Maccabees that it was literally death sentence for you and your children, if you were to follow along with just basic things uh, from the Word of God, even have the Word of God. So, yes. Um, Daniel, do you have a comment? The, the observation that it's true that if the Maccabees, yeah, they were, it was a last push in many ways. It was a funky dying off of Judaism, essentially. Um, had they not, had they not, existed, not failed, we wouldn't have our Torahs. Uh, they wouldn't exist. Uh, we wouldn't have the laws of God. We wouldn't have any prophets. We'd have nothing. Because all would be burned off and destroyed. Because no one was able to preserve it. Not a single living soul. We think, oh, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls. No, they came after the Maccabees, not before. They existed afterwards. So they, were, they, they, they survived because of them. So it was, it was a last-ditch effort, a last push for God to preserve the laws of God, so that when Messiah did show up, there would be somebody around who knew something about God, as opposed to being a, just a bunch of pagan, worshiping group of people that know nothing about this foreign God that existed hundreds of years ago and now has long since been gone. Yeah, can you imagine how many copies of the Torah right. we'd oh. still have? Right. If, if the, the, the period of the Seleucids in there yeah, didn't happen? There'd, there'd be tons, because there were, there were a lot of the time they were burning. And secondly, as you pointed out earlier, is that um, throughout both biblical history as well as post-biblical history, um, God really only focused on small remnants to do anything. It was a small group that actually did stuff. They went, so, so a small group did something that triggered some event later on, triggered, triggered the, 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 the uh, sequence or domino effect of, a big, of, of an event to occur, some plan that God does to occur. 
Though when we look at you know, modern day Israel, for example, oh well, what, is, what does Israel do? If we're looking for prophecies and such, and that's a big deal. That's true, but keep in mind that since God has focused and repeatedly used small groups that accomplish something, because this small remnant, the Hasmoneans, for example, or the the, the wind that came back from Babylon, the, the the small the small number that actually did something, that's what triggers him saying. I will now bless this. It's that nurturing seed he does over time. And, and, and your other comments earlier, which you were talking about, was that because he does that, a prophecy set, to set like for the passage we're reading now, all the passages we're reading now, <clears throat> that yet yeah, happens at the time, for the most part in complete or in full, and then he can take sections of it and repeat them later, which he does at different times, but not necessarily in, in, in full. He doesn't have to. If, if I give you, you know, 20 prophecies about a particular, particular event, and then God says, okay, with these, with these 20 prophecies, I'm going to give all 20 of them now, and then in, you know, eight generations from now, I'm going to use uh, 14 of them, but not the remaining seven or, or six. Uh, and then, then after that, I'll, I'll do a different set of 14 of that. I'll re- rearrange them. The, the prophecies are still, they're still real. They still happen. They still, they're still existing. Uh, uh, they happened as far as they were prophecies. They did occur. But he's able to reuse the sections of them or portions of it along the way, not necessarily have to do it in entirety. As you pointed out with this one, this whole Isaiah was at nine, I think it was, with the, the, the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. And yeah, that was very highly, highly active when Messiah showed up. Note, it didn't say the people of, Lebanon, or of Zebulun or the people of Naphtali, but rather just the land out, because the people were long since gone. They had moved on and they weren't around anymore. But the land still existed, and therefore the prophecy applied. Um, but then also, most of you, many of you are probably familiar that have read Khan's book about when he covered this topic. And Jonathan Khan, he, he'd skipped that section because the land of the Tali, the land of, 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 of Zebulun, was not applicable at all to what he was talking about. But yet the rest of the prophecies did match what he was discussing. So he points out that the... the, the Portions can be reused and also discarded once they've been used. God is not bound by that, by that method. He has to use everything 100% every time. He can say, hey, I've used it once already. Now I've used it three other times in different forms later on. They're all still valid. They're just valid in section form or as, as a time which he chooses to use them. Um, that's just how, I, how I've seen it multiple times. Yeah, and that's one of the the key lessons that you get from the prophets is that you'll see, and we've seen references in just the passages we've read here so far, is that Yeshiyahu is drawing from what we've read in the Torah about what happened there in Mitzrayim, what happened with the Exodus, pulling those things forward. It's like, okay, well, you knew and you saw what happened then with the Exodus. Well, this is what the Lord is doing now with the same situation. Kind of like what you were mentioning there with the remnant. One of the key lessons that we get of the remnant, <laughs> the most amazing part is, from where? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's one of the key lessons that we get of the remnant. That if there were but ten, those cities would, and their whole surrounding areas would have survived. Ten would have saved that incredible, nasty uh, metropolitan area would have been saved. So you can just see, and you see throughout the prophets that the mercy of the Lord is persisting for the sake of 
remnant. But in the end, the remnant, especially when you see the prophet Ezekiel, that remnant will be plucked out through the judgment that comes on the rest of everything. Just like you know, Lot and his family were plucked up out of Sodom for the judgment that came upon them. That the stench grew too stinky. That that abomination just had to be taken care of at one particular point in time. So, with that, uh, we see here in, in chapter 11... The shoot will spring forth in the stem of Yesi, and a branch from its roots will bear fruits. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The wolf and will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Yesi, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand from the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Mitzrayim, Patros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel. And he will gather the dispersed of Yehuda from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Yehuda will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Yehuda, and Yehuda will not harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines of the west. Together they will plunder the seas, the sons of the east, and they will possess Edom and Moab. And the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with a scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who are left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Mitzrayim. In chapter 12, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. 
Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. So thus you can see, the again, the now and the not yet of it, because as chapter 10 leaves off, you've seen that those who set themselves up as great there with the rebuilding of the destroyed lands of the north, those all cut down with Assyria coming in to destroy the whole northern part. So what was thought to be great, what was thought to stand strong, ended up being cut down. But out, it says, out a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Yesi. So this picture is that stem of Yesi, that promise that you see recorded there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to the king Shlomo, that from this lineage, this lineage would persist on, and that being seen as that there would be a true king that would come, a true king of Israel that would come. And when you see, we've seen explore just a few kings here so far, it was a roller coaster ride. If you were to look at that at any particular point in time, would you say, uh, wow, this is going well? Uh, it was pretty shaky and mostly shaky. Looks like the wheels were coming off of this great, um, this great vehicle of Israel, that it would come to nothing. As you roll on further into Isaiah 45, you see that picture that people would think, oh, Israel was created and came to nothing. But no, Israel was not created to come to nothing. It was created to do something. And that something would be the greatness, bringing the presence of the Lord here to earth. And the greatest presence of the Lord coming to earth is the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And then with the eventual, that the dwelling place of God would be permanently among mankind that we see there fulfilled at the outset. And that this, what we see in chapter 11 and in chapter 12, that this is truly the Holy One of Israel is dwelling in your midst. And that is the great blessing of the messianic prophecies that come forward. But even at the time of Yeshiahu, with these, um, this and this point was early on in the prophecy for Assyria, that when the Assyrian conflict, those people taken off, that return is only going to happen at the, at the day of the Lord. Later on in Yeshiahu, Babylon, those, some of those people, small portion of those people did return. But what about the rest? That's also talked about here. The Messianic era is going to bring in the rest, the fullness of it. So, Yeshiahu was giving a picture to the kings that he was speaking to at their particular time period. Look, you're throwing your lot in with the wrong people. These people will not save you. 
trust in the one who saved and proved it by saving Israel out of Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage. Just as he promised he would, promised to Avraham a long time forward. So that even along the way, no matter what troubles and trials we face, you know, as it mentions there in, in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who does no clue what we go through. We have a high priest who knows exactly what we go through. Because Emmanuel is one of the most precious names of God, that God is with us. So any last thoughts as we close out here? All right. Close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us the great promises through all your servants in such a long period of time. And Father, we just ask that when the times look dark, that you remind us about what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Father, we just ask that you strengthen our faith, strengthen our trust in you, that we will persevere through all these trying times. We thank you for the great provision you've given us in the Word made flesh. We thank you for all these things in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halel.info. Halel.info.